Good morning again. You can hear me now, I hope. I uh, hope that'll be true throughout the sermon. Uh, we're on about our fourth microphone, so we're trying to figure out what's going on, but thanks for bearing with me. Um, we are going through uh, the summer, or the spring and the summer, uh, looking through the Gospel of Matthew, using the Gospel of Matthew as a guide to um, answer the question of what are the ABCs of in-town? Why do we exist? Why are we here? And we're looking at our mission statement each and every week. In-town Presbyterian Church is a community seeking to embody the historic Christian gospel in the city of Portland. And we're going to look at each of those main words and ask, what do they mean? And how do we begin to apply it? And so we're three sermons in looking at the idea of community and what kind of community is in town meant to be. So let me read our passage for us. This is our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. In 1997, two women, very famous women, died six days apart from one another. One was the ultimate celebrity. She had fame and fortune, a storybook life that everyone was interested in. Her wardrobe choices affected the way that the rest of the Western world dressed. She was an icon, and she died at the very height of her notoriety and prestige and cultural influence. The other one died six days later. She avoided fame. She mostly avoided the camera and certainly didn't seek the limelight. She wasn't classically beautiful, and she was virtually unknown until she was around 60. She spent her time helping abandoned children, AIDS patients, and those with tuberculosis. And her organization, when she died, ran 600 mercy outposts in 120 countries. She took on others' burdens, and she lived into the brokenness of the world in a very inconspicuous, deliberately inconspicuous way. Anyone know who these two women are? Mother Teresa and Princess Diana. Both were undeniably influential. But which life would you want to live? Which life are you attracted to? Which life seems to hold the most promise of cultural influence? Well, Jesus is telling his church here to be two things, salt and light. And the salt does two things. It's first of all a preservative because in days before refrigeration, it was rubbed into meat to stop the decay of the food. And it's an interesting metaphor because science tells us that the world is winding down, that the world is actually falling to pieces. It's decaying, the second law of thermodynamics. Everything you see, everything you experience on a daily basis is breaking down at different speeds. 
Our bodies are breaking down. Despite the best medicine and the newest technology, eventually our bodies decay and we die. We can't keep them from falling apart. Relationships seem like they're constantly moving towards disillusion, and so we have to have attorneys, we have to have therapists, we have to have marriage counselors and mediation to keep relationships functioning well. And the sun itself is burning out. I'm not sure what Jesus wants us to do about that one, but it too is decaying and falling apart. And Jesus makes this outrageous statement that Christians are the salt Christians are meant to be that which slows down the entropy of our world. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, wait, but Christians are the problem. They're intolerant, they're narrow-minded, they're against all of the things that I find to be valuable and good about our world, everything that I'm pursuing. Well, if I grant that perhaps that's the case, that some Christians are those things, that those at the shallow end of the pool always make the most noise, Would you grant that in most cases, the people that you're envisioning, those people on TV, the people with placards, are acting against some of Christianity's most cherished values and virtues? Jesus is telling Christians to carry His values into the activities of their daily life. And as they do that, as they enact the values of the gospel, as they become the hands and the feet and speak the words of Jesus, then as salt, they begin to prevent acts of injustice and inhumanity and violence. And they also promote peace and reconciliation and the healing of conflict. But what we have to realize first is that has to happen, first of all, in us, if you're a Christian this morning. Following Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes have to take root in our own lives. As we determine to follow Jesus, we first have to be conformed to His teaching. Our lives have to begin to be woven back together so that they're coherent, they're peaceful, they're healthy, they're full of life. And that's true because Jesus is talking to the gathered people. That's true of the community, that we have to be first a place of peace before we can offer that peace to someone else. We have to be the place where the salt and light is at work. But then as you go out into your work world, perhaps you're there to restrain this idea of profit by any means. Maybe you're there to give voice to the voiceless that business practices may affect. Maybe you're there to raise concerns about how does this affect the community around us? How does this affect the built environment and the physical environment? Maybe you're a member of a school board or a zoning commission and If you're there, you have the opportunity to give voice to the the poor or the immigrant, the, the needs of those who are generally excluded. Or when entropy begins to set in in your marriage or a dear relationship, you can decide to act not solely out of self interest, but to pursue actively, intentionally forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, as you think about the 20th century, the person that all the time comes to mind is doing this is Martin Luther King. He was an inconvenience to those who were in power in the American South, those whose self-interests, those whose livelihoods were protected by the status quo. They were threatened by his prophetic voice. And so what happened? His message was embraced by some but utterly attacked 
and rejected by others. He himself was threatened, or as Jesus says here, persecuted. Now, salt works in another way, not just as a preservative, but it also makes things taste better. People who follow Jesus are meant to make life more delightful, more delightful for others. They're meant to be a moral compass without becoming the moral police of the community. Jesus says in John that He has come that people may have life and have it to the full. Is that your hope this morning? Is that your hope for in town? Is that your hope for your individual life? Are you looking for ways to season other people's lives with delight and freedom and grace and the radical acceptance that Jesus has seasoned your life with? You know, you can, you can buy the perfect steak. It's the right cut. It's the most expensive filet from a local butcher. You know what you're doing, so you cook it perfectly. It comes out. It's not dry, but it's juicy. It's a little bit pink in the middle. It's sizzling. It's perfect. Are you now thinking about lunch? Sorry. But what makes that steak better? It's salt. Everyone puts a little bit of salt on a steak in order to make it taste even better. Salt makes the wonderful things of the world better. And Christians are meant to be those who feast, who enjoy the good things of the world, but in a radically different way. Not as an end in and of itself, but as, nor as an act of escapism, but as an act of exaltation, of worship, of leaning into the next world. Christians are meant to feast and party and enjoy the world as those who are thinking about, leaning into, imagining the next world, understanding that the delights, as intense and wonderful as they are in this world, are only images, they're only hints of what is coming. And salt must be rubbed in. It must be in the world in order for it to have its effect. And so Christians are meant to be people willing to go to the places that other people don't want to go to, the places of danger, the places of darkness, that Christians are meant and called not to avoid those places but to go into them so that the salt can be rubbed in. And that may upset some traditional concepts of what spirituality is, that is, purity by separation, You may not be so distant from the dangers of the world if you are the kind of salt that preserves and seasons. In Acts 17, Paul goes into the marketplace of the world, and he interacts with the ideas about life. He reads these pagan, he knows the pagan writers, and he sees a sign, and he affirms part of their worldview. But he does so in order to communicate to them the full truth, the whole truth, the truth about Jesus who himself is accused of being a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of the worst sinners of his day. As salt, he is rubbed into the places of darkness, the places of hurting, the places that the spiritual people avoided, like the plague. He goes there to be present. And like Jesus, maybe we need to learn to live in such a way that the Pharisees doubt your salvation, but at the same time, pagans may question their presuppositions about Christianity and say, that's not what I thought it was. So that's salt, but he also says that Christians are meant to be the light of the world. The first purpose of salt is negative. That is, it's a preservative. It prevents decay. The purpose of light is positive. It illuminates. 
It shines in the darkness. One stops the spread of evil. The other intentionally and vigorously illuminates, spreads the truth, the beauty, the goodness of the gospel. Now, the problem is in our American experience, at least, we've been taught to choose between those two things as we think about our churches. In churches that would be more of the so-called liberal bent, you see often salt without light. You see good works, you see deeds of justice and mercy and protection of the poor, but sometimes with little or no proclamation, no good news, the church comes to resume a, a rotary club or a lion's club, and there's nothing wrong with those clubs, but they're not churches. But then on the so-called conservative end of the American experience, you see a lot of light without salt. You see lots of talk, lots of proclamation, lots of moral protest. The verbal is elevated over the visible. But is it truly good news if it's merely talk? The gospel calls in town to be salt and light. Jesus says, go back and tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, the good news is preached to the poor. Not simply to impede entropy, but the world needs Jesus. The world needs His light. The world needs the good news holistically defined. But there's one more thing about salt and light. They work best when not being noticed. They work best when illuminating, seasoning something else. Salt works best when it's not noticed, when it makes food taste good. But no one says, man, that salt on that steak was so good, i got to get some more of that. In the same way, you never look at art and say, man, the light waves coming off that Rembrandt were amazing. No, Salt points to something else. It brings out the beauty of something else. Light illuminates something else. They both accentuate the loveliness of someone else. Light illuminates the beauty and the contours of someone else. Verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men. Why? That they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. Churches are meant to be an embodied message of the good news. Communities working, as I quoted in your bulletin, Harvey Kahn says, to banish war and poverty and injustice, to set up a life where love and service and justice have taken the place of selfishness and power. In order that, people would long to be united to God Himself, that the salt would take them somewhere else, that the light would point them to someone else, the Father in heaven. Now, the astounding and strange truth is that Jesus, that God, links His own reputation to us, to communities like us. And we carry His reputation as citizens in a society where the church is no longer everyone's first option of spiritual care or answers or searching, and in our city, probably one of the last. In a Christendom situation, which existed in North America well into the 20th century, it could be assumed that courts of law and rites of passage and commerce and public ceremonies and the like would assume a certain openness to the name of Jesus if not exactly an admiration, at least a, a grudging recognition 
of His importance in our society. But today, apart from isolated pockets in our country, that's no longer the case. And Christians, if they're going to be salt and light, have to realize that the infrastructure and the cultural presuppositions that used to prop up Christianity as sort of a first among equals is gone, and it's gone forever, at least for the foreseeable future. Christians have to realize, in town has to realize, that we live as a minority and that proclamations of the good news won't sound good to most of our neighbors. They will sound, if not articulated well and embodied well, it will sound colonial and oppressive and exclusionary. So how then should we work out our understanding of proclamation in such a way as on one hand to avoid falsely offending those who don't belong to our particular brand of Christianity, but on the other hand, so as to engage those who are at the edges of faith or at least curious of whether something good can come out of Nazareth. Now, we're not looking just at this text, but we're trying to discern how does it give us bearing as a church? Why does in-town exist? How does in-town become salt and light to our city and to our culture? And remember, when Jesus is teaching this, Christianity was not yet illicit religion. It was an illegal, an illicit religion. And that it wouldn't become an accepted practice, and you wouldn't be out of danger until almost four centuries later when Emperor Constantine made Christianity acceptable in the empire, and then later the religion of empire. So Jesus' hearers, like Christians in Portland, were outsiders. They were in the minority. Now, the problem is for us that the decline and fall of Christendom doesn't feel like a sudden death. It's not binary. It's been a process, and so perhaps we haven't fully recognized the church as we've always done it in the affluent West isn't going to thrive if we continue business as usual. Individual churches may survive by offering better goods and services than the church down the road for the declining number of people who are actually looking for those services. But without a radical reassessment and a radical understanding of our vision as a church, the church won't thrive. It won't see conversions. It won't be salty or lighty. Sorry. (laughs) Here, in the West, in the United States, the fall and decline of Christendom has been a process. It's long and unfinished, but all but certain to continue. But what about those places where Christianity has declined not as a long process of disestablishment, but as one of radical, intentional disestablishment from the powers in that country or in those countries? The experience of the churches behind the so-called Iron Curtain in the recent past, wasn't a long disestablishment, but one in which the church was being intentionally put to death and extinguished. But here's the thing. Can we learn from them? Because it seems that counterintuitively, the suddenness of that death, the suppression of their faith from the outside persecution forces caused a counterintuitive resurgence that the church became alive again, and it flourished Yes, in a dangerous situation, and yes, in closeted ways and in isolated ways, but it became salt and light in ways that it never was before. 
in a place where there was no social advantage to being a Christian and a lot of social political pressure to renounce the faith, Christians were forced to be more circumspect and more thoughtful about why they were Christians to begin with. And they emerged in those contexts as prophets of a liberating experience, a liberating alternative to the oppressive systems of Marxist-Leninist ideology. These Christian churches flourished underground, and that's what we see in China and in many of the countries around the world where the church is exploding. It's in places where the infrastructure doesn't support them. The ideologies of the culture are opposed to them. That's where the church is actually flourishing. Can Christians in our day become voices of transcendence and liberating truth and beauty in a brutalist world? Well, Douglas John Hall, who has influenced me in this area, he's a professor at McGill University in Montreal, and he says, today Christendom is in its death rows, and the question that we all have to ask is what, what can we do to get over regarding this as a catastrophe and begin to experience this as a doorway, albeit a narrow one, into a future that is more in keeping with what our Lord first had in mind when he called his disciples to accompany him on his mission. Now, the church from the edges, rather than the center of imperial society, a disciple community possessing awareness of its changed relation to power can exercise a prophetic vigilance for God's beloved world that as a part of the world's power elite, it never did and never could achieve. Do you see what he's saying? That the church has this opportunity. In fact, the church, the effectiveness of the witness of the church has always had an inverse relationship with its relationship with power. Read the book of Acts. It's given to us as a gift describing how the church can flourish in a culture that is radically opposed to it, where it is in the minority. Maybe the disestablishment of Christianity isn't, of Christendom, isn't an entirely negative thing. Maybe, and we'll talk about this later in the, in the series, that we as a church in that situation begin to lose interest in parsing out our differences with other Christians and become co-belligerents with others, Christians, despite the fact that they may articulate their faith differently than us. Or maybe personally, this week you could ask, what is broken in my neighborhood? Who needs help? Who could benefit from me taking time out of my schedule to walk across the street and either befriend them or offer service of some kind? Maybe this week in your office you could ask, who is it that's isolated? Who is voiceless? Who is powerless? And you can begin to ponder how to care for them, how to step into their world and carry their burdens. Well, the Hindu priests in Calcutta were initially very critical and suspicious of Mother Teresa ministering there. She was an outsider, and she was, more importantly, a Christian. They opposed her work because she was unabashedly Christian and stated repeatedly that she cared for those with AIDS, tuberculosis, and other communicable diseases because of her commitment to Jesus. But one of the priests contracted an infectious disease, 
and no one would touch him. He was isolated. But Mother Teresa carried his emaciated body. And if you've seen a picture of Mother Teresa, she's about this tall. She carried his emaciated body into her home and cared for him until he died. And he said, For 30 years I have worshipped the goddess Kali in stone, but today the goddess mother stands before me alive. He didn't quite get it all yet. He's still referring to Mother Teresa, not the one that she was reflecting, but he was interested. A Hindu priest is interested in this other religion radically different because of the compassion and kindness and embodied gospel that Mother Teresa lived out. Mother Teresa would say that it was Jesus' light and not hers that was important. And in her life, that light was visible and and verbalized and practiced and proclaimed. Friends, at the end of the day, we remember as we look around our world that there is decay There is disillusion, but there is salt and there is light from outside of the world that can rescue it, that can save it. And this salt and light is not you and I ultimately, but it is Jesus himself. He doesn't say this directly in the passage, but he does indicate it. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. This tells us what kind of light you and I are supposed to be. He doesn't say that we're like the sun or like the stars because the suns and stars, the sun and stars, has light in and of themselves. You're not like them, but you're like what? A lamp. A lamp cannot produce light. A lamp can only hold light. That is, your light is always derived from the one who is the true light. Jesus is implying very strongly here what's stated repeatedly elsewhere through the Bible, that Jesus Christ Himself and alone is the light of the world. And you become, in town becomes, the light of the world only as you, we, are lit by Him. Let's ask that that be the case, even today. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that we would be people who carry Your truth but do so humbly, because the truth has humbled us. The truth, truth, as we understand it, has said that we are in need of grace, not just once, but every day, that we stand in need of Your redeeming, forgiving, healing grace. Lord, only then can we do what You're calling us to do. So I pray, Father, empower that in our lives as individuals, as families, in our dorm rooms, in our workplaces. And Father, let in town be a place that is lit by the light of Jesus, the light of His grace. Lord, I pray, make us into a place that can be not in and of ourselves or of our own strength and power, but salt and light for a needy world because You are present here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.